All right. Thank you so much, worship team. Thank you for your singing. Really love that last song we just did and, and all of them as well. So really grateful to be lifted up with you guys this morning. All right. Hey, uh, thank you for making it this morning again. And you have found us in part six of a nine-part series called Refocus, Refresh, Refuel. And if you've been with us at all, you know kind of the purpose of this. And this is after a little while doing something that you've been used to doing, you need time to refocus, right? You need time to refuel. You need time to refresh. Whether that's playing on a sports team in school, whether that's being a part of a musical, whether that's being in your job and having to remind yourself, this is why I go to work. Whether it's in a marriage and saying, wait, why did we get married in the first place? You know, what are we doing here? Everybody sometimes needs time to refocus. And as a church, this is kind of our time to refocus on what it is that we're doing. And so we asked the question in week one, what are we doing? What are we doing as a church? And we answered that really simply with saying, hey, that our mission is to develop fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and we want to stay on that mission. Talked about how easy it is to drift from that mission. Then secondly, we talked about our vision. What is our vision? Where are we headed? That in the middle of doing that, we want to be present in the town square. If you can imagine that picture of a church present in creating sometimes the town square, being being relentless in our pursuit of the social, spiritual, and cultural good. That is kind of where we're heading, the things that we're trying to do here at GPC. And then we asked, if we're on that journey, what's it going to feel like? What's it going to feel like as we walk that journey together? And we talked in the first week about being fearless with one another, in relationship with each other, forgiving generously, speaking openly. We talked about serving our neighbors and those around the world with abandon. And last week we talked about this idea that we grow spiritually and we're transformed spiritually when we embrace challenges together. Right? That was weak, but that's okay. I get it, right? There we go. All right, perfect, perfect. All right, now I'm excited that you're here this morning, and here is why. Because our topic this morning on the what's it going to feel like, our, our core values really that we're going through, is a topic that touches every one of you no matter where you are at. It's an issue that you deal with no matter what stage of life you are at. Your first exposure to this issue is when you are young and you start to get an allowance. How many of you got allowances when you were little? All right, again, uh, just... It's harder for me to see, so let's do the full-on. There we go. How many of you got allowances? When you're, there you go. All right. How many did not get an allowance and wished you would get an allowance? How many are still bitter that you did not get an allowance? Okay, there we go. All right, this is helpful information. All right. Now, for those of you who are allowance people, or okay, let's just say you got an allowance. How many of you were more savers with your allowance? How many of you saved that money? How many of you were spenders with your allowance, where you just went through that baby? That's why it's there, right? I mean, why else would it be there, okay? Good, all right. Now, from little on up, as soon as you get any kind of money, the question becomes, what do I do with it? And what's the right thing to do with it? How do I handle that? How do I manage that? What should I do with it? And how many of you had parents or whatever who tried to give you some guidance on how to handle your money? Yeah. How many of you, as you got older, became more of a saver than a spender. Now, how many of you who got older became more of a spender than a saver? Good. Okay, good, yeah. How many of you are married to someone who's trying to keep you in line? Now, just don't raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> this issue of how we handle our money and how we interact with it and how we feel about it and how we deal with it is, I think you know this is a spiritual issue. 
It's the topic, as many of you know, that Jesus actually spoke more to than, than uh, any other topic in the New Testament related to money. You know, this constant refrain of coming back to money over and over and over again. It's very interesting that he did that. And it's very interesting then, therefore, how a church handles this issue of money. Now, you and I both know that the church is made up of people, so I can talk as much as I want about the church and its handling of money, but in reality, the matter is, how do we individually handle that? And are we in somewhat of the same agreement on how we individually should handle it, therefore how we as a church should handle it? And so this morning I'm excited to go with you to a passage. And if I can just be honest with you to tell you a little bit about me in case you fear at any point along the way. Okay? If you are a saver, and you may not know my personal habits, my financial habits, or maybe my background, some of you may not know that, and that's okay. I come from a long line of penny pinchers. Okay, I really do. Some of that is from growing up as a missionary kid, and we would joke that we lived on fumes as a missionary family. Okay, we would often get hand-me-downs, and we rarely got anything new. It just was the way it worked. We lived off of missionary closets when we got home, which, by the way, are not excellent ventures. They are leftover, leftover, leftovers from the leftovers that people had, okay, is what ends up happening. And, uh, you know, I grew up very, uh, with, a, with a very uh, tight, okay, financial deal. Like, I never thought that I would even get anything that my friends might have who might have a little more money than me. And I was fine with that. I did not grow up bitter or angry about that at all. I was totally content. With, with what we had. In fact, when I wanted a dartboard as a child, I knew that I couldn't, we couldn't afford a dartboard. It didn't even cross my mind to be bothered by that. I wasn't like, hey, I wish we could afford a dartboard. No, I didn't care. I, mean, I just knew we couldn't and it didn't bother me. And so I made a dartboard out of old curtains and like loose lumber around there. Believe it or not, I built something with wood that actually worked, okay, with foam thing that I found. I just made it. Right? And that's just where I come from. And therefore, carrying that through my life, Financially, I tend to be more conservative financially. Some of you have heard as we did a, a marriage uh, event here uh, two years ago that Jen and I and our marriage have lived on a budget ever since day one. We continue to do that now. I tend to be more conservative that way with wanting to know where does the money go, where does it come in, where does it go out. That's just the way that I roll with that. It helps me a lot. Been able to work going through college and seminary to get through both of those debt-free, and that was hard work to do, but that's part of the deal, and those are important things to me to be able to do that. I share that with you so that you know personally that the message that I'm going to share with you is a big challenge for me. Just this, this is a big challenge. What I'm going to share with you this morning, coming out of the Gospel of Mark, is a huge challenge for someone like me who's wired financially okay, the way that I'm wired. And so when I challenge you, I'm challenging me. This is just the way it works. So this morning, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to, and to take it out and look in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It goes Matthew and then Mark and Luke and John. Mark was a disciple of Jesus. Mark, I think I would have liked Mark because he was a, seems like a get-it-done kind of a guy. He, more than anybody else, any other disciple of Jesus, um, has a fast pace to his gospel. And he goes immediately, 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 immediately. He just moves through that. Then the Gospel of Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to hang out this morning. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible if you haven't found it already in the pew near you. And that, by the way, is our gift to you this morning. If you don't own a Bible, we want to give that to you, let you take that with you here this morning and, and have that. Um, when you read a gospel, okay, and this is what Mark is, the book of Mark, we call it a gospel. Um, when you read these, uh, I want you to consider it... Um, 
consider that the best way to read a gospel, if you're reading in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, just individually in your own study, the best way to read it is not like you might read the Proverbs, where you might read one proverb and pull a proverb or two out, or not even maybe like you might read the Psalms, where you could pull a couple of verses out. The best way to read a gospel is in full context. So while I want to get to a story about the feeding of the 5,000 that happens in verses 32 on down, I want to get there. But in order to get there and understand that, we have to start at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. So we're going to start there, we're going to run down to that story, and then we're going to tell the story after that story as well. They all relate, there's a thread that's woven between all of them, and that's the best way to read the Gospels and understand what the author is trying to communicate. So, Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, to set the stage for what's going on here. Okay? Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Just tuck that word back in your brain, amazed. That will show up again throughout this story that Mark is writing. Where did this man get these things, they asked. Where's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? And then they ask, isn't this the carpenter? Like, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Uh, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. In other words, this guy is one of us. What right does he have? I know where he comes from. What authority does he have to do these things and say these things? And Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and hear them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Verse 6 of Mark chapter 6 sets up a theme that Mark is going to unpack for us. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now that theme is going to carry on down through this chapter. And so after that experience, verse 6b continues. So Jesus went around teaching from village to village and calling the twelve to him, Twelve disciples, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. So here's what's happening. Jesus is taking his teaching and now he's franchising it. Okay? Now he's saying, I want you to go here, you to go there, you to go here, you to go here, you to go here. You have my authority to go out and we're going to spread the word exponentially by heading out to do this. So six teams go out. Verse 8, and these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No, what's the next word? Bread. No bread. That theme is going to show up later too. No bread. No bag. No money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. And so they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Okay, so here's the story. These disciples now are going out. They're teaching with authority from Jesus about all these things that he is teaching about, the kingdom of God that is to come. And they're having great success. And they're going out with few resources, right? No bread, no extra tunic. Just go out there. Trust me. You're going to be okay. Trust me. And what happens? They're highly successful. 
They're, they're having, I'm reading into this, but they're having a great time. Okay? I, they're having a great time. They're being successful at what they do. Check out verse 14. In fact, it becomes so successful and so effective that verse 14, King Herod heard about this. Now, that's a pretty big deal. How effective would you have to be at communicating your, mis- your message that President Obama would hear about you? Fairly effective. King Herod begins to hear about this and all the commotion that's going on. This is a fairly big deal. For Jesus' name had become well known, verse 14 continues. So some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. Now, let's pause it there. Isn't that strange? Can you imagine, just imagine, if President Obama came on the the news and said, um, hey, there's someone who's been raised from the dead, and he's sharing a message that we all should know about. Right. Right. Okay. You got it, buddy. (laughs) You're crazy. King Herod, as if this is a logical explanation, is like, hey, it must be that John was raised from the dead. Seriously? Here, I mean, that's the best you have? Would I follow a guy like King Herod who says that? I don't know. So here's what happens. Verses 17 to 29 backs up in the account to bring us forward. So verses 17 and 29, here's what happens there. Okay, I'm not going to read the text, but just tell you the story. John, the apostle, gets arrested. Um, and the main reason for that is that Herod decides that he likes his brother's wife. All right? He likes Philip's wife. Her name is Herodias. Her name becomes Herodias. That's kind of cute, Herod and Herodias. Kind of how neat is that? There's a couple in Texas that we knew, Jen and I knew. Their names were Bob and Bob Ann. True story. They're very nice people. But it was really funny, and I can't help but keep remembering Bob and Bob Ann. It's amazing. Anyway. And she didn't change her name. That's just what her parents named her, which is another issue in and of itself. But anyway, nonetheless, okay? Bob and Bob Ann, and here we have Herod and Herodias, you know, and, and they, they're, they're getting together. But Herodias was Philip's wife. And so Herod is like, hey, I'm Herod. My brother Philip has this woman. I, I kind of, I want her. And so he takes Herodias as his wife. And John is like, you can't do that. And Herodias is like, she gets angry. She gets so mad, and she is trying to figure out a way to get rid of John. Well, John is influential enough that it is not a good thing to just take him out. That would be a big problem. So what happens one night, and many of you may know the story, Herodias' daughter comes in to dance before King Herod and his wedding, or his, his banquet guests. No doubt, no doubt, they, were, they had a, a lot, at least, of food, certainly a lot to drink of some kind. I don't know. I wasn't there. But they're enjoying themselves. And Herodias' daughter comes in to dance, and she, as the text says, pleases them to the point where King Herod in the moment is like, oh, this was amazing. Hey, I'll give you anything you want. What, would, what is it that you'd like? Up to half my kingdom. It'll be yours. She's like, oh, let me phone a friend. Mom, what would you like? Mom says, I'd like the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She comes back to Herod. Herod, I'd like the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Begrudgingly, he has to follow through. He sends the executioner. 
to John, cuts his head off, kills him, brings the head to Herodias on a bladder. Game over for John. And now Herod is convinced, that man that I beheaded has come back to life. What's up? The story continues. Verse 30. The apostles, after their going out to teach, they came back and they gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now, have you ever had a successful hunt? Have you ever had a successful event where you and maybe the guys, you and the gals or whatever, you go out for a weekend thing or whatever and you come back and you tell the story of something that went really, really well? And so here's the apostles. They're coming back. They're like, hey, Jesus, 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 let me tell you. I went here, I went here, I went here, and here, and here, and here, and let me just tell you what happened. Well, the problem with that is that there's so many people who know what's going on that they just crowd around and they want to hear too. I mean, there's no office space that Jesus has, and so they're just talking out in public. And here's the problem, verse 31. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to... What's that word? Eat. Keep that in mind. They're hungry. He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Very important for you to get in the mindset of what's going on. Jesus then says to these apostles, Guys, I know you want to tell me your story. I know that you're hungry. Remember, I sent you out without any bread. And I'd like to hear it from you. And so there's a lot of people around here. Come with me. Let's go away from everybody so we can have some peace and quiet and I can hear your story. I want to hear what you have to say. I want you to be able to eat and I want to be able to have some quiet and rest with you so that you can rest. Sounds great. Good plan. But, but, verse 33. But many who saw them leaving recognized them. Of course they did and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, which was where they were supposed to be in a solitary place, he had, and what's that next word? He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so instead of feeding the disciples and giving quiet rest to them, he began teaching them, many things. Now this is nice and all, but Jesus, the reason we're here is so that we can recharge. The, the reason that we're even here is to get away from the people who are here. Right? Isn't that what you said? Like, let's go get something to eat away from all these people, and now all these people are here. In fact, more are here than we're there. Can we go back to there? I'd like to eat. I'd like to rest. Jesus, showing compassion, teaches him. Verse 35, this evidently went on for some time. So by this time, it was late in the day. And so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place. Remember, we came here to have some quiet. And it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. <laughs> Have you ever, as a kid, blamed uh, something on your sibling? In other words, and all of us raise our hand for that, we should. In other words, have you ever said, hey, mom, 
My sister's hungry. She wants to know when supper is. <laughs> hey, my sister wants to know if I can have another cookie. She can have another cookie, you know. I don't know for sure, but something tells me that the disciples have some of this going on. They haven't eaten yet. How do they know that the crowd is hungry? And beyond that, let me ask this question. Do you think they're telling Jesus something he doesn't know? Do you think he's dumb to this fact? Do you think Jesus is unaware that people are hungry? Oh, disciples, thank you for telling me that. I had no idea that people were hungry. Wow. It is a good thing God gave me you as a gift to me to teach me things that I don't know myself. He knows this, I have no doubt. He's aware of the situation. He's also aware that they haven't eaten. And so he knows this, and he responds this way in verse 37. But he answered to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, That would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread? and give it to them to eat. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. So much happened in those verses. Can you imagine Jesus saying to you, and you, you come to him with thousands of people in a remote place, go, and give them something to eat. It is an impossible task. We know it. It's an impossible task. And yet Jesus gives it back to them. And they say to him, their response, this is so important, their response is, Jesus, that blows the budget. Like, Ain't nobody got enough money for that. In other words, it would take eight months' wages for that. And then they ask the question, are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Now, I don't know if they're asking for Jesus to rationalize this decision. This is about, in our language, about a $25,000 request that Jesus is making to them. Let's just put it in our terms. So if, if we were to say to you, hey, we need you to feed thousands of people right now, and it's going to cost $25,000. One of your questions legitimately might be, is this a good use of funds? It should, be a, it should be a question that comes to mind. Is this a wise thing to do? Because these people can feed themselves. Why do we need to spend twenty-five grand right now for one meal? Maybe they're asking that question. I think the other question is, ah. How can we even begin to conceive of that? Because do you notice, they don't come to Jesus with a plan for their resources. They come to him and say, here's the plan. They're hungry. The plan is, they go feed themselves. And Jesus' question is this, well, how many loaves do you have? He knows they don't know. Because they haven't even checked what they have. Because they didn't even assume that they could be part of the solution. And so he then says, go and see. And so then they have to go back and think, oh, I well, we have five loaves and two fish. Now, Jesus, do you want me to take one of those new cut-co knives or one of the new, like, sharper-than-any-steel knives that we see on TV and cut the five loaves and two fish into millimeter-by-millimeter millimeter sections 
and give everybody a little crumb of food. Is that what you want me to do? Give them something to eat. The problem is this, and Jesus is pressing into them on this issue. He's saying, guys, there's work to do that requires resources that you don't have. And I want you to do it anyway. There's work to do with resources you don't have. And I want you to do it anyway. And you may even think that it's a waste. But I want you to do it anyway. The disciples push back. We don't have the money. The assumption being if we had the money, maybe we could. (laughs) But we don't. And the question becomes, what leads in our interaction with people? Compassion or currency? Our compassion for the needs of people or how much money we have to meet the needs? What comes first? The ministry or the money? And Jesus presses in. says, guys, come on, remember? Didn't I just send you out with no bread? Didn't I just send you out without an extra tunic? And didn't you just come back and tell me about how well it went? In fact, it went so well that King Herod heard about it. Didn't you just have success with the very thing that I'm pressing in on you on? And now I'm asking you to take that further. Feed these people. But we don't have the resources. You've never had them in the first place. Have mercy, have pity, have compassion. And lead with that. So, you know what happens if you know the story. Verse 39, Jesus directs them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looks up to heaven and he gives thanks and he broke the loaves. And he gave them to his disciples to set before the people and he also divided the two fish among them. And they all ate and were satisfied. Not just a crumb, not just a millimeter slice. They had it all. They were satisfied. And the disciples picked up Twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, verse 45. Here's Mark's pacing in his story. Immediately, after this happens, because the story doesn't end there, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, that same boat they came to get away from everybody, and he said, okay, go on ahead of me to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd... After leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. And when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake. So in other words, they hadn't really gotten that far. And he was alone on land. Jesus was alone on the land. And he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. Of course he did. And this is hilarious. He was about to pass by them. Isn't that weird? Oh, hey. Hey! It's you guys. I mean, I normally walk this way. Look at you, poor people, you know, struggling with your boat on the lake. So that, that's hilarious addition. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. Of course they did. I probably would have too. And they cried out. 
because they all saw him and were terrified. Of course, it's in the middle of a storm. They're struggling. They're trying to get somewhere. It's dark, middle of the night kind of thing. And here goes somebody walking by, about to pass by on the lake. See guys in Bethsaida. They start screaming like a bunch of scared girls, all right? And then he's like, hey, he spoke to them and said, hey, nothing against girls, by the way, okay? All right. Spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. And check out what happened. They were completely, what? Amazed. Didn't we hear that word before at the beginning of this section? They were completely amazed. They were overwhelmed with what they saw. And verse 52 ties in this with what we just read. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. The walking on the water is about the loaves. (laughs) It's not just about the walking on the water. The story is about the loaves. The press in on this whole thing is about the loaves. The press in on the, and all this is about the lack of faith as this thing opens up in chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. It's about the people who are, who are amazed at what Jesus is teaching, and yet Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. And we see all these things happening, culminating with the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus says, come on, feed these people. They say, there's no way I can. And at the end of the account, He walks on the water by them. And he finishes this by saying, Mark finishes it by saying, and they didn't get it. They didn't get the point of the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Now, the story leads to a bigger point. It leads to a bigger point of when we're overwhelmed, when our resources are limited, When we think God is leading us to do something that we can't do, who do I trust? What do I value? And I will tell you this, and I think you know this. When we lead into life, when we lead into life needing all the resources to be there first, needing to have a clear solution to the problem, needing to know how it's all going to be done, that never engenders your faith in God, does it? It never makes you... Depend more on God when you have a clear solution, does it? When we know exactly how the problem is going to be solved, it never causes me to worship God's greatness more, does it? It never does. It causes me to be more dependent on my wisdom and on myself. And it causes me to harden my heart toward others who can't figure it out themselves. And so Jesus is about to pass by these poor people on the water. They hadn't learned the lesson yet about the loaves. And here's what we say about the lesson about the loaves, the lesson about Jesus walking on the water, and and all of what we see. Related to our resources. And if Jesus is talking more about money than practically anything else, and if Jesus is pressing on his disciples in a story that is told in all four gospel accounts, about the feeding of the 5,000 or 3,000 or what have you. What is it that we need to learn about how we handle our allowances, how we handle our paychecks, how we handle the resources that we're given when it comes to meeting the needs of the people around us where the needs are so much greater than our resources allow us to meet? What is, it that, what is our approach and what should our approach be to handling this? And here's what we say at, at GPC. Say this. Oh, baby, here we go. Ministry always comes before money. 
If God wants us to do it, we will step out in faith. Ministry always comes before money, and if God wants us to do it, we will step out in faith. This comes from the teaching in Mark 6. It comes from the teaching of the feeding of the 5,000. If ministry doesn't come before money, we have a problem. Now, there's, there's four assumptions I want to deal with real quickly, briefly, to, to help you understand where I'm coming from. This ministry always comes before the money. If God wants us to do it, we will step out in faith. If you're thinking with me this morning, this may create some fear in you okay, about what the implications of this might be. In other words, am I trying to make the claim for us as a church that anything, anything that we can call ministry, we should do? Like, should we build a new $10 million building right here and call it a ministry center? And God wants us to do it. I need you to step out in faith and do it. Is that what I'm appealing for? Is that what I'm asking for? What do I mean by this statement that ministry comes before the money? Because the implications are pretty significant for us to understand. Let me, let me draw some assumptions out. Number one, ministry is driven by compassion, not currency. Ministry is driven by compassion, not currency. In other words, there are times when you are so moved that you ask the question, how can, how can I afford not to help? Not, can I afford to help? Right? There are times when you see a need around you and you just ask, how can I afford not to help? You don't ask the currency question first. Let me put it this way. I heard a story um, that was really cool at our Fall Fun Fest on Friday night. Okay? There was a kid who um, lost their bag of candy. And they had accumulated it all night. This is a big loss. Okay? I took it, of course, but I wasn't going to tell him. Okay? <clears throat> Just kidding. Kind of. And what they were doing in the last moments of the night were going around to try and get candy frantically from all the games that they could, could play. And one kid, seeing the need, takes his bag of candy and says, you can have some of mine. Compassion, right? Not currency. The currency is the candy. Being led by currency says, I only have so much candy... I can't share it all with you or else I don't have as much. But being led by compassion says there's a need and I can't afford not to help. There's a kid who needs help. I've got a time. Here, how can I help you? Ministry must be led by compassion, not by currency. That, that has to be where we begin. If it's led by currency, our hearts become hardened and we make your need into simply a financial one. We don't get the whole story behind it. Now, that being said, we also have to ask this question, does God want us to do it? Our statement begs an answer to this question. Does God want us to do it? Does God want us to build a new $10 million ministry center right here? By the way, I'm totally making this up. I didn't even think about saying this. It just came into my mind in this moment right now. Okay? Does God want us to do it? Now, I will tell you this right now. I wish that this were cleaner than it is. You have struggled, no doubt, to figure out what is God's will for my future. Have you ever made a decision that you thought was God's will, and then you were wrong? Right? And, and then you're like, man, I think this wasn't right. I interviewed uh, a church, church leaders in, in Maryland a little bit ago, and one of the things they said, and here's a pretty sobering reality, the church leadership spent over a year 
investigating, studying, and searching out a new campus for their facility. They laid out the plans of their congregation, and the congregation ended up giving over a over million dollars of seed money to the building of a new facility. In the course of time, that facility ended up not being able to be built when four different architectural firms and four different engineers, whatever you want to call it, ended up saying, guys, this plan isn't feasible, not going to work, impossible, sorry, you're done. So here's what the leadership of the church had to do. After this big, long push of buy-in from the people and over a million dollars given in architectural and engineering fees, which is not recuperable, if that's a word, they had to come back to the congregation and say, guys, we think we didn't hear God on this one. We're sorry. This isn't the direction we can keep going. That's a big pill to swallow. That's a big pill to swallow. I wish it was cleaner. I wish that, that every time leaders came up with an idea and said, this is what we believe God wants us to do, that they were infallible. It's, it's not going to happen. There are going to be times when leaders, even the, the most sincere of leaders, will think this is where God is leading us to go. And it may be wrong, but it also may be right. There is no, all of a sudden, <laughs> this is a terrible analogy, but crystal ball for church leaders. Okay? There is no, all of a sudden, guaranteed future that, that we'll get right. We depend as much as you do on prayer, on listening, on community, on searching the Scriptures to find out what God wants us to do. So we come with conviction, but also with a recognition of our fallibility. The question is, does God want us to do it? And I wish this were perfect. It's not. Thirdly, there's an assumption of a foundation of biblical stewardship. When we're asked to step out in our faith, which we will be, this assumes that there is also an awareness within us that there are biblical principles for how we steward our resources. I am not calling for us to meet every potential need that comes, to be wildly um, irresponsible with resources. I've already shared some of my story. Okay, I believe there are healthy biblical principles that still apply, even in the middle of following Jesus in this matter. This assumes a foundation of biblical stewardship, but it also assumes this, and this is where it's hard for me, it assumes that there will be times when we step out in faith. There will be times when we have to say, I'm on the foundation of biblical stewardship, but even with that, and this one doesn't make sense, I need to step out. It doesn't make sense to feed the 5,000, but if God has asked me to do it, I've got to step out. I want to ask you two questions to, to, to wrap this up. The first question is this. What moves you to compassion? Okay. What moves you to compassion? Now, if you've ever seen a grandparent with a grandchild, anything grandchild-related moves them to compassion, right? If you've been a parent and you've had a kid and the kid is crying or screaming or stubbing their toe or whatever, you're like, ah, they'll get over it. Grandparents are like, oh, oh, dear Johnny, oh, let's get you a cookie and chocolate milk and oh, you know, let's sit down. And they're moved by compassion with what they see, right? And so here's the question. What moves you to compassion with the needs around you? And if you're having a hard time thinking about that, the question becomes, has my heart become hardened? And have I led in to the people around me and said, oh, if they only manage their money better, 
Oh, I've got to protect my bag of candy. I know I have some extra, but what if I need more? What moves you to compassion? What moves you to act? In the New Testament, that word compassion always moves people to action. Always. Compassion isn't just a state of mind, it's a state of being. It's a state of acting, a state of doing. What moves you to compassion? And you and I both know this, that a balanced budget, as good as that is, and as much of a fan of that as I am and have been throughout my life, a balanced budget never moves my heart to greater faith in God. Truthfully, I've never come to the end of a, of, of a year in our personal budget and been like, man, I believe so much more in the faithfulness of God because my budget is balanced. I don't ever do that. Now, I, I'm grateful for the biblical principles of stewardship that keep us from, my wife and I, from arguing about money. Right? I'm grateful for that. That's good. But it doesn't engender an extravagant faith in God that I can balance my budget. It's just like, hey, we played it well this year. God has been good. I will say that at a broad level. God's been good and he's been faithful. But it doesn't make me step out into extravagant faith in God. It causes me to just kind of step back and say, hey, if other people were more consistent, faithful, reliable, they'd be fine. And it makes my heart hard. It doesn't make me compassionate. It makes me disciplined. But it doesn't make me compassionate. The question has to become, what moves your heart to compassion, to act, to give your candy to the people who need it around you? The question is this, who do I trust and what do I value? Who do I trust and what do I value? Do I trust my resources? Do I value my resources? Do I trust in God's work? When I was in seminary, I had a professor, Dr. Bill Lawrence, good fella. Um, his son actually was my boss at our church in Dallas, Northwest Bible Church in, in Texas. A good family. Um, the Lawrences would invite us over as uh, kind of lonely seminary students to their family Thanksgiving meals. Really appreciated that. And I remember one time, Kent, the guy who was my boss, um, and his wife, Michelle, um, asked Kent's father, Bill, you tracking with me so far? Kind of doing the backwards Mennonite game for those of you I'm just tracking lineage here, okay? Um, they'd asked they'd asked Bill to bring the pack and play for their um, son to play in at this event. Well, Bill Lawrence, um, Dr. Lawrence, he he put the exorcer in the car instead of the pack and play. Okay, now if you don't know what that is, uh, sorry I can't explain to you. You know, it's a little ring and you stick a kid in it and they have a good time in it. Well. Bill and Michelle, or excuse me, Kent and Michelle went and said, hey, Dad, where's the pack and play for, you know, Junior to sleep in? Well, there it is. Like, Dad, that's the exorcer. Oh, come on. I packed it. He can play in it. What more do you want? It's a pack and play, all right? Right? There we go. So this family, the Lawrence, is a great family, and Bill Lawrence taught a number of classes um, in my uh, graduate studies and then also taught a leadership course for my doctoral studies I had just finished. And one of the things that he said as he walked through a passage like this is he, he made this statement, and I want, I'm going to quote him up here for you, and I want you to know he's a real person. Okay? And he made this statement that has stuck with me, and I hope will stick with you, because this is about your individual choices in a church, and it's about your individual choices in your life on what you're going to do with the allowance that you get and how you're going to see the little bag of candy that you hold 
and how you are going to interact with your future finances and what your heart will be toward them. And here's what Bill Lawrence had to say about this and what God asks us to do. He said this, God will ask you to do what you cannot do with what you do not have for the rest of your life. And this is the issue of the feeding of the 5,000. He's going to ask you to do what you cannot do. Feed the 5,000. I can't. With what you don't have. Resources. And he's going to ask you to do this for the rest of your life. So you're sitting here. And you're listening to this. And you're living in a world where there are some major crises going on internationally. There are some national problems in North America. There are some local issues that are systemic here. And if you're honest, you come to be like, you know what? We just have to live with it. This is the way the world is. It stinks that people in paradise live in such poverty. But I don't know what I can do about it. I don't have the resources to fix it. It really stinks about this whole refugee crisis. I don't like it, but I don't know what I can do with it. It's too big. I just have a little bag of candy. Now what if, what if God is asking you to do something that you cannot do with resources that you do not have for the rest of your life? And what if this church not just Grace Point Church, but the Church of Jesus Christ takes our vision from our bag of candy and says, we serve a God who has the resources to do whatever He wants. And what if we don't settle in to being okay with the injustices that we see? What if we don't settle in to saying, I can't because I don't have? And what if we were to address this issue God is asking us, as followers of him, to do what we can't do with what you don't have for the rest of our lives. Hey, Jesus, the people are hungry. Why don't you send them somewhere to get some food? It's a great idea. The problem is Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. I need you to feed them but we don't have the money. Ministry always comes before the money. Let your heart not become hardened. Raise your eyes. Increase your courage. Move your faith to be amazed at the one who can do more than we can ever imagine. And let's walk this together. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us courage as men and women, boys and girls. To believe that your work is done through people like us who are willing to be moved by compassion and who have not nearly enough money, 
Not nearly enough ideas, not nearly enough strength, not nearly enough time to fix it all. And yet you turn the question back on us. You feed them. You do this. You're moved in your heart with the need that you see. Trust me, I'll help you. Father, give us the courage to raise our eyes from our little bags that we have, from our little resources, and say, wait a minute, I serve a God who made it all. Give us the courage to be men and women who lead with compassion and action for people, even when we have no idea what the future might hold. Help us, Father, to do what you have already done, to follow you in the way that you have walked with us, to follow in your lead, to trust in you, to be courageous, not because of our stuff, but because of who you are. Father, we love you. We ask for your help and vision and courage to do immeasurably more than we could ever imagine on our own. We ask this in Jesus' name.